Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio host, and nationally recognized safety expert, Dr. David Perotti. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Follow Dr. Perotin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. Hi, everybody. This is David Proton, and welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast. Today is a critique of Homeland Security's Guide to Prevent School Gun Violence. It came out in 2018. I'm going to walk you through it, some things I like about it, and some things that just don't make sense. Some anecdotes. My book, School of Errors, launched on August 7th. Very successful. I was interviewed by Spectrum News Milwaukee in studio with Wisconsin Public Radio and just uh, numerous opportunities to talk about the book and have upcoming author events. So very excited. School of Airs, Rethinking School Safety in America. Check it out. Um, so my 2008 Chevy Impala I'm detailing it out right now. We bought the car new in 2008, and it has 95,000 miles. You know, needs a, a little bit of tender, loving care to, to keep it uh, looking good. So I spent five hours on the interior. Now I'm preparing to detail the outside of it. But there's molding along the doors, um, along the sill, and some of the little plastic fasteners had worked their way loose and I needed to get a couple, you know, like three, um, two or three. And I'm going on eBay and you had to order like 200 of these. There'd be like five bucks. It wasn't like a big deal, but like, what do you do with the rest? <laughs> I need three of them. I don't need 197 left over. So I went to the O'Reilly Auto Parts in town, was able to find just a three pack, did the job. So our chimney was replaced on our house. Our house is 40 years old, built in 79. Uh, we did many updates to it, but uh, a couple stones have fallen out of the chimney. It's a stone chimney, comes out of the, out of the roof. Um, I noticed that this year, so called and had an appointment, checked out, yeah, it needed to be worked on. So actually today when they were working on it, they said, yeah, we just need to take the whole thing down and rebuild it because it's it's not, they just did it by hand. They didn't need any machinery. They just said it's all kind of crumbling. The uh, rest of the the fireplace and flue and all that is, is solid. But um, so pretty interesting to watch your chimney be rebuilt and they're bringing up the buckets of mortar and the different stones and stuff like that. Looks really good now. It has a, a steel kind of scaffolding around it for two days to hold it in place as as all of the mortar and cement cures. But yes, 40 years, and uh, hopefully we'll get another 40 years out of it. Um, so I am retired, and this is the time of year I would typically be doing back-to-school in-services, back-to-school professional development. Don't have to do it this year. So my friends who are doing that have been sending me pictures of their professional development. Hey, how's it going? I'm like, yeah, I was out chopping wood today or I was out on a bike ride and my neighbor asked me, do you miss going back? And I said, not at all. Um, just because I'm enjoying retirement and, and consulting and having a very open schedule. So it's working really well for me, enjoying that to the hilt. So let's talk about this guide. It's called K- 12 school security a guide for preventing and protecting against gun violence second edition 2018 it's a free online pdf download and it's from the department of homeland security okay so you know 29 pages long right off the bat that's too long because it has several pages where it kind of gets into the backstory of why the document was created. And that's like, people don't have time for that. You know, this is better than in the past when documents of this nature would be 70, 80 pages long that we saw coming out of Department of Ed, Secret Service, FBI, things like that. 29 pages, though, it's still too long. 
Um, so the the guide presents it, it does present as more general than just being focused on gun violence. You know, I think there's this this caution we have to have for single focus initiatives. You know, when you create a guide just for gun violence, well, gun violence isn't that prevalent in schools. Now, violence in, in general would be more prevalent, whether it be, you know, fights, gang fights, bullying, um, you know, har- harassment, online, you know, social media attacks, things like that. So I'm not really an advocate too much of these, these single focus initiative documents, but that's what this one does. And I'm going to go through it right now. So it has four phases of security. So the first phase is connect. And I'll just go through the four and then we'll talk about them. Connect. Second is plan. Third is train. Fourth is report. Okay, so connect. Indicating, hey, make the connection with law enforcement in your community agencies so you can work with them to help prevent and also respond to gun violence. Makes sense, um, but the problem with that that wasn't addressed is the frequent turnover with your contact people in those groups. So the frequent turnover in law enforcement, school administrators turning over every two, three years. So we need more of a discussion of how we keep these connections across agencies when the point of contact is changing frequently. One of the ways to do that is to train many people or if you have the school uh, making a connection with the police, there's maybe three people in the school making connection with three people in the police department. That way, when you have turnover, you still have continuity because more than one person has been trained. And we don't do a really good job of that, right? We, we kind of train one person and they, they leave and all the knowledge goes with them and you have to totally introduce the initiative to someone else saying, hi, like you're brand new in this position, but this is what the last person did to work on preventing gun violence in schools. So it just doesn't work very well. So that's the first one, connect. The second one is plan. Planning, identify the task and then chart a plan to accomplish the task. That seems overly simplified, right? plan, identify the task, and then chart a plan to accomplish the task. I think it's it makes sense, though. If you want to make sure that you're identifying, um, you're, you're prioritizing. What, what is the task? Maybe the, the, the task is that you're going to um, work with the um, outside agency and identify um, how you're going to structure student focus groups and what questions you want students to talk uh, about to help inform you about gun violence. For example, are students aware that other students um, have been having discussions of using weapons, whatever it might be? And whenever we talk about charting a plan to accomplish a task, here's what was left out. We need a baseline. We need to know where we're starting because otherwise what happens is we get a year out and people look at where we're at, and then they're like, okay, here we are, but where did we start from? Did we have growth from baseline? And it's hard to say that you did or didn't unless you specifically know where you started. And unless you have that identified right at, right at the start, here's our baseline, here's our starting point, we're going to measure change from baseline, whether we made progress, we regressed, or we were stagnant. Okay. So we need to take that into consideration. And when we plan, we're planning specifically to measure one, two, maybe three things. This is where people dilute it and they try to like go way over the top and say, we're going to have four objectives. We're, we're not four. We're going to have like 12 objectives we're going to measure. I worked in a district once that did that. I'll never forget we had a meeting at the superintendent's house in summer. And we were talking about all of the district's initiatives. And literally, we had a, a whiteboard, um, you know, that was, you know, brought in, set up on an easel. And, you know, we're getting to like 15 initiatives. And I commented and I said, there's too many. 
Like, we're a mile wide and an inch deep with this. This is just too much. And the superintendent dismissed it, and the other administrators dismissed it. So, you know, we have to address all of these things. So, well, you're not going to do it well. I mean, you, what you need to do is you need to address three to four things uh, really in-depth. And people can handle that. They can grasp that. And then once you get into second and third year, then you're on your sixth item, then you're on your eighth item, and your twelfth item, you know, you can definitely see that growth. But I think it's this tendency to take on too much too soon. And it just kind of wipes everything out. So the four phases of security, we talked about connect, we talked about plan. Third one is train, using drills, games, and exercises. Okay, that makes sense. But we also need to delineate the difference between a drill and the difference between an exercise. Um, if we have a, a Fire drill, for example, of just, you know, running people outside of the, the building and then getting them back in and it's just a couple minutes. Okay, if we're doing like a whole intruder exercise where we have objectives then within that exercise and the exercise might take 15 minutes, you know, we're going to test our two-way radio systems. We're going to test our PA system. Um, we're going to check how people are notified at other locations in the district of that, you know, this, the school is now in an intruder lockdown situation. So you have these objectives. So those go along with an exercise and people mix these terms up. I'll admit that in my book, School of Errors, Rethinking School Safety in America, I use a term drill when I probably should have used the term exercise. So we need to be very clear about the terminology there was an opportunity to do that, to define that in this document, but it didn't happen. And also training is more than drills, games. I don't know exactly what that is and exercises, but tabletop scenarios, even discussions, presentations, all of those things kind of list through the steps of what is, um, I guess I would say least invasive, such as a discussion and a tabletop to what is more invasive, which would be a full scale simulation. Okay. So our fourth part, report. Now, when I saw this, I'm thinking, okay, report is how we actually do an after action report, how we talk about what happened, how we put this in a presentation for a school board. And it wasn't any of those. Um, what it was here, train your team to know what something is and what to do with it. Meaning, see something, say something. So reporting when something is out of the ordinary, when something is a threat, when something's unusual. Now that's a lot different, right, than actually assessing what happened during your drill and exercise and, and, and putting that into some kind of report that you would deliver to a school board or staff. So I was thrown off by that. And also training your team to know what something is and what to report with it. Yeah, you're training your team on that, but the part that's left out on this is you're really training your students. So in a building of four or 500 students, your students are the ones who are gonna use environmental awareness, who are gonna pick up when something is in that uncanny valley, something is just a little bit out of the ordinary. And they're gonna say, you know, this person has been around the school and I, it just doesn't seem right. They don't have a purpose to be here. They've been pretty close to the playgrounds, whatever. Um, somebody's in a hallway without a, a name ID or district identification, something like that. So I think they're targeting the wrong audience with this because administrators are already going to have a knowledge. They're going to have a tacit knowledge of when something isn't right. They're going to do that through their investigative process. It's more like who informs the administrators? Who brings it to their attention? Because we know 75% of the time during gun violence um, in a school, somebody else knew ahead of time and they didn't bring it forward to an adult, an administrator, law enforcement. Bethel, Alaska, 1997. This is a great case study to research. Um, a boy brought a shotgun to school, completed a school shooting and Several students showed up on the mezzanine at school because they were going to watch this shooting unfold, and they did. One brought a camera. One of those students actually had trained the shooter how to use this shotgun. So, you know, 
we talk about the four phases of security, connecting, plan, train, and report. The, they missed the boat here with reporting. Reporting needs to be focused on the student level. And then I think, you know, if there's something additional, it could be reporting from the way that the system gets informed from reporting and then reporting more in the form of an after action report or a hot washer. It's how you're getting all your information and putting it together in a coherent manner for like your school board or for your teachers or your community. That wasn't in here at all. A must read for parents, teachers, and taxpayers. Dr. David Perodin has written the most honest book about the $3 billion school safety industrial complex. Attorney James Sibley proclaims, a brave demonstration of speaking truth to power. School of Errors rips the lid off the billion dollar school safety industry. Using real world examples of successful responses in desperate situations, David contrasts the expensive window dressings pitched to panic parents with the inexpensive and effective approaches proven to actually work. Read this book before you let your school waste another precious dollar on meaningless safety theater. Buy the international bestseller, School of Errors, Rethinking School Safety in America, now at Barnes & Noble or Amazon. So, um, yeah, what was missing from these four phases of security are learning objectives, baselines, and change from baseline. We talked about that. It's really, really critical to know. So the document had a lot of jargon, all right? And here's an example. So what is an OFC? Well, it's an option for consideration. First, I had never heard that before in my life. OFC, option for consideration. First time when I went through this document. First time I heard that. Okay. But, you know, you have, I had to hunt through the document to find it. It wasn't, you know, it didn't come up and then say, here it is, bold it, or, you know, set off. Here, OFC, option for consideration. Now, when I got through the document to the end, Appendix E was acronyms. It was there, but I didn't know that from the start. So anytime you're using uh, a term like that, and I, again, I hadn't come across this, it needs to be clearly pointed out in the narrative and not that you have to search for it. So, I mean, I'm familiar with this. Think of the school administrators educators who are using this document who don't have the background in school safety, you're going to start losing them once you throw some of these terms out there. They're not going to get to the final pages of the document to stumble across an appendix where you have the definition of this jargon. So yeah, pretty clumsy. Um, this would have benefited from some member checks and some reviews before being released. With the question of, if you are a brand new administrator, does this document make sense to you? Are there entry points in this document for how to get both feet on the ground when it comes to school safety? Because that's what I really hear from school administrators when I consult in the country on school safety. More than ever right now, people are saying, we don't have an access point, an inroad, an, an easement for new school administrators or school administrators who are assigned the title of school safety director, coordinator, whatever. You know, we think of large districts and that they have, uh, you know, multi-layers of systems, which often is present in large districts, but 75% of districts are small, you know, under a thousand students. So, you know, it's those places where your person who's your K-8 principal is also the head of food service and transportation and your director of safety. So they have many hats that they wear. Again, the question, the new administrator assigned to school safety, um, how can they access, how, how, how can they get started in school safety? Because what I'm hearing, I just had a... Um, phone uh, or Skype consultation in the last few days uh, regarding this. And the question was, I just don't know where to start. This is from a school administrator. I don't know where to start. There's so much out there. It's ubiquitous, right? 
you can Google school safety and find 40,000 resources and, you know, different clearinghouse websites with here's, you know, 45 links to additional websites and documents and things like that. So that's where I'm hoping this critique of Homeland Security's Guide to Prevent Gun Violence kind of gets at that. We need to be very concise and we don't need to be sending people in a hundred different directions for information. And we need, again, 29 pages might sound brief. It's an improvement. It's not concise enough. We need to get people's feet on the ground. So yeah, too much jargon. Let's keep going here. Um, all right. So this OFC um, option for consideration, to me, this seems like opportunities. There the opportunities heading of a SWOT analysis. Now you're like, oh my God, Dave, you just threw another acronym at us, SWOT. Yeah, I did. Okay, but I'm going to describe it for you right now. SWOT. Strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. SWOT. It's from um, the business world, and I use it in my school administration courses. So strengths, you talk about an organization. Let's just talk about school safety. So if you want to analyze your school using a SWOT analysis, your school safety practices for your district. Strength, you know that we have dedicated in-service time. We have low turnover in administrators that we have a budget for school safety. Those are some strengths. You know, um, weaknesses. We don't have inter-rater reliability across our principals. They're all kind of doing their own thing. Um, you know, weaknesses um, we have a, a staff turnover during the year and student turnover, and we're not always getting those people up to speed on school safety. All right, opportunities. An opportunity is we can create an induction pro a process so we can make sure that when teachers are hired or staff are hired, they immediately are trained on school safety, how we do things around here for school safety. And we can do the same things with students through like a peer buddy system. So that's an opportunity. Um, Another opportunity is that we can partner with neighboring districts so we can do some cooperative professional development, maybe split the cost of, you know, presenters and things like that. So in, in a threat, you know, threat is like declining enrollment. Um, a threat is loss of state funding. So we don't have as much dollars to pay for professional development or professional, um, uh, you know, for trainers to come in and do professional development on site. Um, another threat, you know, that we have, rapidly um, deploying new th threats like deep fakes and things like that that we just can't keep ahead of in the school setting. So strength, weakness, opportunities, threat. But you get opportunities like that induction. That seems very similar to this option for consideration. Like you, you'd look at that and say, we can change this, right? We could do something about this. We could improve this. It doesn't mean we have to invest a ton of resources or time. This is very doable for us. So what you want to do is, and I think it, they would have been better served to use a SWOT analysis here, is you want to identify the opportunities that you have before you and how to turn those into strengths. And then you take on maybe two of those and say, here are two things that we're going to do. You know, we're going to take on our opportunities, which is we're, we're going to increase our induction process, make it more efficient for staff and students. And the second thing we're going to do is make sure that our handbook is at a readability level that matches our students. So if we have middle school students, our handbook is at like a sixth grade readability level. Okay, two things you can do, right, for opportunities. Turn those into strengths. Um, so again, you know, I talked about two and I shared that opportunity I had with the, you know, the one district where they're like, you know, we're going to have 15 initiatives this year for, I mean, I think that was not even representative of, of what we we're talking about during that that summer meeting at the superintendent's house. I think there was more than 15. And it was one of those things where you, you can start steamrolling. I mean, once, once it's like the national debt, right? I mean, what's the difference between 10 trillion and 20 trillion dollars? I mean, and they, they get to be abstract in some sense because you just, you know, what's the difference between 20 trillion and 100 trillion? I mean, it just gets to be hard to conceptualize these things. And that happens. People tune out when you get too many initiatives, it just overwhelms people. Initiative overload, right? So that's, uh, one of my friends who is a principal said, Dave, you know, the key to being an effective principal is making sure that you have 
you know, no more than four objectives for your staff for the year. Like total, it doesn't mean you're not working on other things, but you look four objectives and maybe even less than that because people can handle that. The moment you go above that, you overwhelm them and, you, you know, and it's true. He's completely accurate with that. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin, author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. I'm going to move on here. So Appendix A in this document, this was pretty wild. Um, Evolving products and technologies for consideration. First of all, it kind of seems odd because one is that is going to change by the month, right? You're always going to have new things hitting the market. You're going to have different threats uh, manifesting in the market. Right now we have deep fakes. Um, avatar realism, things like that. So I, I just think this is this is really weird um, because it's it's going to be outdated. It's like a computer software update. I mean, it's going to be effective for a short amount of time, and then it's it's you're going to have to have another update. So it's a weird section, but let's get into it because some of the things in here from the moment this was launched didn't make sense. First one, um, I'm not listing all of them. I'm listing most of them, though. Closed circuit video, CCV. Okay. And how they did this is they list the cost of something, like in general, and the maintenance considerations, which was pretty vague for all of them. Like, you have to check the system to make sure it's operating as it's supposed to and stuff like that. I mean, it was pretty useless to have that in there. And first responders, how they would interface with this. Again, all of that had to be pretty general. So closed circuit TV. Yeah, I, I guess, right? But close, what's new about that? Again, these are evolving products and technologies for consideration in a guide to prevent school gun violence. So all of these have to have some way that they are preventing, contributing to the prevention of school gun violence. I didn't see it for most of these. So closed circuit video, well, no, you know, like closed circuit video and surveillance, it's forensic. Okay. It is forensic. It's going to tell you what happened after the instant. You're not going to be monitoring these things in real time. And it's a myth that law enforcement is going to be able to access your real time um, closed circuit video and be able to identify where the shooter is and track the shooter through the building. Most school shootings, most shootings in general, active active shooter situations resolve in less than eight minutes. We've seen some of them resolve in one minute. So, you know, the CCV thing, um, yeah, it, it sounds like it's straight out of the 1980s, right? I mean, crazy. Okay, so ruled that one out. S- second one is door blockers. They did a nice job of not getting proprietary with that, but we have issues with door blockers uh, because we have issues uh, with you know ADA accessibility. Also, what if somebody locks some other people into a room by using this door blocker? Um, it gets past you know the the just the making sense point of hey, like we need to keep our doors locked at all times in schools. Like the default needs to be locked. So if we do that, um, you know, and and we have solid core doors, we're we're probably fine. We don't need any of these elaborate systems of of these door blockers that you have to, 
you know, maneuver and all of that. So again, I think it, it gets to a solution, quote unquote solution, that if you just have your basic process of your default position is all classroom doors are locked, you would resolve this. You don't need the door blockers. People don't typically try to bust their way in through a locked door to get into a classroom. A shooter will go to the next door, they'll go to the next open space, whatever it is. Um, C, gunshot detection systems. We've had schools in Wisconsin who have bought these things. And again, do they do what they're supposed to do? Yeah, they probably do, right? They probably will identify when a gunshot has been fired in a school. Um, now, again, you know, we're talking of school shooting situations lasting up to eight minutes, but they can last as short, you know, as a minute. Um, so is this going to result in, you know, responders being on the scene faster and all of that? Maybe um, in some cases, but probably not, especially for a rural district. And, you know, the shooter is dynamic. They're not standing in one spot firing off rounds. They're there and then they're somewhere else and they're not firing round, rounds that whole time. So this is really oversold and it's pretty embarrassing, I think, that it made this list. Um, so let's move on. Integration application-based services. Again, something I've never heard of in my entire life. Integration application-based services. Basically, what this is, is it's apps, phone apps to notify um, teachers, um, students who might be off, off campus, itinerant providers, so forth, that something is happening and possibly interface with law enforcement, first responders, so forth. Yeah, those systems um, aren't nearly as perfected as what vendors would want you to believe. And once you get to a proprietary system, um, you, you lock out some of the ability to use native systems, which are just are going to be very effective anyway, like Facebook Messenger and things like that. Um, so if a school is communicating out what's happening, if somebody doesn't have the app, then how do they get notified? So is, again, I, there's there's problems with going with these exclusive apps. Some of these, some districts have it down. Okay, I don't want to indicate that not. You totally have to stay away from apps. I'm just saying um, there's much more to this. And you really have to go in and you have to vet the apps because this is a huge growth area. Like you can conceive an app and 30 days later have it on the market and be selling it. So you got to look for apps that have been out there that have beta trials. Um, they've been tested with students with disabilities for accessibility. The, the app provider is keeping da data on the app and things like that. So. Moving on, locks. How locks and door blockers didn't make it in under the same heading, I don't know. Um, you could have just put door barrier, whatever, I don't know. But locks, yeah, investing in, you know, robust, strong locks. Kind of a given, right? Like, it's not so much investing in the actual lock mechanism as it is making sure that there's fidelity that the lock is actually locked. So we're missing the point here. Um, again, we're just missing the point. And not only that, then making sure that we have solid core doors, uh, meaning a door that if it is locked, you're not going to be able to just easily, you know, kick it down, kick it in. So that's something when we look also at, you know, um, new school design, you know, how are we building our schools? What kind of doors are we using? Stuff like that. Um, and also to have, you know, robust locks and things like that, I think it's just a good security measure for when the building might be occupied after hours and things like that. You want your classrooms to be secured. Okay. Um, the next one is mass notification systems. So again, this kind of gets into integrated application-based services that need to be split into two, mass notification systems. But... Again, didn't elaborate on this. I know many districts do not communicate with their offsite providers. 
let's say it's a 4K um, community site. Districts will have um, numerous 4K partnerships, whether it be with a, at a church site, whether it be with preschool providers in the community, daycare providers, um, and they're not able to communicate out to them, hey, we have one school that just went into a lockdown or logout because of whatever. So mass notification systems. So this is where, again, it kind of gets into that previous one of, of application-based services or apps. Um, but it's a question, and this came up when I did a student focus group. Students who were off campus during the time of a lockout, so they couldn't get into the building, they're, they're buzzing on the, the door, hey, like, let me in. And they're like, whoa, we're on lockout. Um, they didn't know. They were coming, taking a course at the community's two-year college. So how do we let people know? Okay, the next one, motion detectors. I don't, so, <laughs> uh, the value of motion detectors is, is letting you know if there's motion in some area where there probably isn't supposed to be activity, uh, maybe like a loading dock or something like that. But, you know, a school of four, 500 kids, what is a motion detector going to tell you? If kids, people moving around all the time. So, you know, it's probably going to be more of a feature to have at night when you don't have many people in the building. Um, but it, we don't typically have gun violence at night because gun violence occurs when the building is dense with population. So, yeah, I, d I don't know who came up with this list because it gets really wild right now. The next item is smoke cannons. Yeah, smoke cannons. Um, again, I mean, I've never seen this in a government document before for preventing gun violence, um, but apparently you can fire a smoke cannon and disorient the shooter. Of course, you're going to disorient the police and the students and anyone that's involved in, in that situation, but it's just crazy, right? You're not going to do this. Who's going to deploy these smoke cannons? Who thinks this is a good idea? And then that's going to trigger maybe your sprinkler system and just everything. I just, it's crazy. You gain no advantage in doing this with, with the smoke cannons. Again, there is some practical aspect of this where when this comes up and they're having this discussion, as they're proofing, let's imagine that somebody proofed this, you know, that there was a team of people putting this document together at Homeland Security. And they're like, you know what? Smoke cannons. What would that actually look like in a gun violence incident? Okay, someone would have to access the smoke cannon and then would have to fire the smoke cannon toward the gunman? Um, you know, as you step through this and as you say it, 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 the ridiculous nature of the statement just hits you upside the head, right? It's so obvious. So yeah, smoke cannons. No, it's almost like somebody put that in there just to see if the proofreader would take it out. Your content person. And they didn't. It's ridiculous. It's embarrassing. Um, the next one, tactical training and equipment for school resource officers. So um, meaning more that you're training your school resource officers on how to um, sweep the building if there is a um, someone in you know, with a firearm. So yeah, I guess that makes sense. When you talk about equipment for SROs, now you're talking about bringing, um, you know, rifles, assault rifles into schools and keeping them in a security area for SROs. A lot of schools are against that, right? In my area here in Wisconsin, um, close by, a district voted to not do that. The school, the police department wanted to have a assault rifle in the school for their SRO, and the district said, no, we're not doing it uh, because of student culture and also saying, um, you know, students were saying this makes us feel less safe. And the reality is how quickly can the SRO get to that weapon, right? I was interviewed years ago by a newspaper and the question was uh it was a district and they were considering um assault rifles in the schools and, and the question that 
the reporter asked of me was, okay, so if there are assault rifles for the police officers, the school relations officer, right? Should it be carried on that officer at all times or should it be kept in a secured location? My response was, it should be, if they're going to do this, okay, if they're saying, yes, we voted and we're going to have an assault rifle um, in the school, it should be with the officer because, you know, some school buildings, especially high school campuses, that's like a million square feet. And, you know, the uh, sprawling campus, if something happens on one end of the campus, the time it takes you to identify where you have to go, plus like the, if there's a, a shooter or shooters, they're dynamically moving. You know, now you've just had a situation instead of confronting the shooter, you're not confronting the shooter necessarily. You're going back to your SRO office to unlock and obtain this assault rifle. So it doesn't make sense, right? It just doesn't make sense. If you're in your office at the time something happens, yes. But most of the time, you're probably going to be out engaged with students and different student activities or not even on site. So yeah, that is, that's pretty crazy. Um, here's another one, pretty, pretty out there. Strobe lights. So the attempt here would be to confuse the shooter, right? Because you're going to do strobe lights. Um, you're going to confuse the shooter. You're going to make it more difficult for police. And you're also going to um, increase the anxiety for students. And I think you're going to increase the confusion because strobe lights typically go with fire drills. And when students are in lockdown, you need to stay in lockdown and not go out for, uh, you know, a, a fire drill, right? You don't exit the building. But some students aren't going to remember that because it's all chaotic. It's all unfolding. It's like, oh, my goodness, like this is like the fire drill, so I have to leave. So that's a crazy thing. We also know that strobe lights and strobe and the sirens that go along with those for fire drills are being modified to be um, less um, uh, uh unsettling for students with special needs, students with autism, um, also students who are prone to seizures. So we, we've had some some advances in those. So um, to think that these are, are going to be these great equalizer that you're going to, you know, disorient. It's kind of like going into what the, the nebulae, right? In Star Trek too. Like it's a fair fight because we've lost our radar and all of, of, of that. <laughs> um, you know, when you're trace, chasing Khan, it's a fair fight. Well, no. This isn't a good idea. So, um, K. I mean, this is like, hey, you know, like the, the next one here should be like, you know, somebody empty a jar of 5,000 marbles onto the floor because then the intruder is going to have a hard time walking. I mean, it's crazy. That's not in here. But, I mean, it wouldn't be that far-fetched to say that's the next thing on the list. Here's another one. Turnstiles. Yeah, turnstiles. They're a pain, right, to get through. Nobody likes them. So somehow turnstiles can slow down your intruders, your gun violence people. Like, what sense does that make? I mean, I think about it. I mean, ugh. turnstiles are problemsome in two ways, not only coming in, but getting out, right? So, yeah, and like you can't evade a turnstile. I mean, I probably couldn't do it anymore at my age. I have to be a slow process to crawl over or get under it. If I'm 18 years old, I'm just jumping over that thing, right? So turnstiles. Whoever came up with this list, I mean, it's inventive. Like I, there's smoke cannons, turnstiles, trouble. I and mean, some of these things I would have never thought about on my own when people are talking about evolving products and technologies for consideration to prevent gun violence. Um, let's move on. Unmanned aircraft systems, basically drones. Whoa. Okay. Let's look at the practical side of this. So yeah, I mean, drones are, are definitely a part of the response for police. I mean, if something is unfolding in a school, they can get reconnaissance um, of, the, of the entire ca campus, but you're not going to be able to see inside of the building, obviously. And I mean, the practical side, somebody has to activate the drone and power up a drone and, you know, first get the drone out of its case, get it up, powered up and all of that stuff. 
during an intruder situation. It's just not realistic. Uh, it takes a while to do. I mean, who's going to do this? What are you going to do? You're not flying a drone inside of the school around the hallways. I mean, not, so unmanned aircraft systems, it's crazy. And finally, visitor management systems. Yeah, every school district should have a visitor management system. You should know who's in your building. That makes sense. Um, but to think that your visitor management system is going to prevent an intruder with a gun, it's not. I mean, if you have entrances where you have checkpoints to get in, it can slow that person down, right? But And those systems are often fatigued. Like if somebody knows, uh, you know, who you are, if you're a student, they're not going to, you know, hassle you. Or if somebody is um, indicating I'm a relative of whoever or I'm here with HVAC systems and stuff like that, people just don't keep a high level of vigilance with those. But So Appendix A has some pretty wild and loopy things in it that I think are more discrediting to Homeland Security than to really indicate that Homeland Security is in touch and knows what's going on. I don't know if this evolving products and technologies for consideration really even needed to be in here. Um, I think you could have gotten down to just saying, you know, fundamental things. One, public address system can be heard throughout the building. Okay, clearly heard throughout the building. Uh, number two, all doors, all classroom doors are lockable and are in the default lock position. You know, number three, that um, yeah, mass notification system, whatever that is. And number four, students know, um, can identify a threat and also know how to report a threat. So, I mean, if you just do like those four things, remember I'm saying like we don't get into this massive list of things and whatever that just dilute us out. We lose our effectiveness. Those four things, most schools don't do those with reliability. Um, most schools, even brand new schools, don't have reliable public address systems. So let's make a start right there. Um, let's kind of wind down here. Better point of entry. So, okay, instead of this, this document, which I'm talking about, go with the readiness and emergency management for schools, REMS, okay, REMS. Um, sometimes it's called REMS TA, which is technical assistance. It's an effective resource designed specifically to interface with schools, and yet few school leaders are even aware of REMS. So this is frustrating for me. It's frustrating for many people in school safety because this is really good. And the REMS technical assistance folks, so this is the U.S. Department of Ed and their Office of Safe and Supportive Schools. They administer REMS TA. Um, they do brilliant uh, webinars. And and it, they really connect in with the schools. But again, I'll teach my superintendent class. I'll teach my special ed director's class. A lot of these folks are in charge of school safety. I'll say, what do you know about readiness and emergency management for schools? They don't know anything. They haven't heard about it. So here we have a great resource. People aren't aware of it. So if you just go to the website, REMS TA, you know, um, it takes about six to, hour, six to eight hours to figure out the major landmarks if you're you know, exploring it online. It's laid out pretty well. So I, I think it's worth the time. It's, it doesn't flood you with a lot of things, um, but it, it, it does take, you know, I would say a solid six to eight hours. I would think... And I'm actually working with um, a company right now to develop a training for new safety directors. And I'm going to include this in that training, that one of the things a safety director needs to do is become familiar with REMS. Now, the thing with REMS is it's not just one-sided, right? You're not just going into a website. They actually have a phone number. Email address, too. Isn't that wild? But they have a phone number. You can call them. Say, listen, I'm brand new in this role. It's pretty daunting, right? I need help. They will give you a local point of contact, someone who can actually drive out to your district and meet with you or that you can meet with them. Or you can, can set up a you know phone call, phone conference with someone from REMS TA. They are terrific about this. So right there, they can say, here's the resources I think you should focus on first. 
And here's the resources that I think should come later once you get a little more into your position. Okay, so what REMS offers? Here's some examples. Really good stuff. First thing, publications and, and guidance documents on their website. Again, they've pared this down to the most important documents for you instead of saying, here are 40, pick the three that apply to you. They offer virtual trainings. They offer on-site trainings by request, okay? So TBRs, training by request. Another thing I had to learn, right? Training by request. Um, but on-site trainings. We talked about technical assistance, these webinars. Very good because usually there's not a lot of people in the webinar, you know, 20, 30 people. And they know who you are when you're at, you know, saying, I'm David from whatever. Okay, thanks, Dave. Thanks for the input. They do follow up. They email you back. They post on social media really good. And they listen, right? They inform their practice by what you're telling them. So yeah, we need more um, delineation between what a drill is and what an exercise is. Okay, we're going to take that and we're going to modify the way that we're communicating out with our districts. Wow, it's really great. Emergency Operation Plan Interactive Tools. It's on their website. Toolbox, including drills, tabletops, and other exercises. This is really well done because you don't have to develop these. You can go in and already take items that have been crafted. Um, they're reliable, they have validity, and you can use them, right? You don't have to pay a vendor. You don't have to buy off the shelf, you know, something very well done. They also have really cool things, the memorandum of understanding. Uh, for example, third parties, how they're working with your district, who they report to, things like that, um, third party agencies. And they have sample reports. If you're doing a report to the community on the state of school safety, to your school board, things like that, they have templates there, samples. I love that. One of the things that I hear too much from the Department of Public Instruction is, hey, we don't provide samples and examples because we don't want everyone to do it that way. We think that if we just put it out there, they're going to replicate it. They're just going to change the heading and we're going to see 421 of the same template that we put out there. But that's not accurate, right? People are professional in the field of school administrators. They're not going to just copy things. And if you have a template that is really an exemplar, this is the way we want things done, why wouldn't you share it? That's just crazy. It's crazy thinking. So they do a great job of putting these, these documents out there and saying, here's an example, yeah, of this report. Use it like put yours, use similar headings and things like that. You'll figure it out on your own how to customize that to your context and situation. But otherwise, again, it's this, this easement. I, I'm, I'm saying people don't know where to start on these things. How do I even put a report together from my board? I don't know. I'm just assigned to this position. Well, here's four examples that some other people have done. Oh, yeah. Okay. I see. I see right here. Okay. This student engagement. Yeah, I like this heading. Okay. Using some number, but also using qualitative, some interview statements. I like it. Makes sense. Good job, readiness and emergency management for schools. They also have um, consider the teen CERT. The CERT is Community Emergency Response Team. That's out of FEMA. REMS TA kind of interfaces with that. But that's getting um, your students prepared for all hazards. Like, you know, if there's a power outage, blackout, and how, how can students um, effectively help their school administrators and help their community if something, you know, extended blackout. If a storm hits and you need to do search parties or, you know, quickly sur survey areas and um, respond to people um, who are injured. Uh, things like that. So teens, teens and kids get uh, excited for the teen cert program because it's just not um, this this one dimension of, of preparing for gun violence. It's preparing for a host of scenarios that could unfold when this student is school age or later in life. You know, what do you do if you come upon an accident? You know, cars roll over. How do you survey the scene? How do you approach that so you're safe? How do you work with the person inside of the vehicle or people are tossed from the vehicle so they're safe? Um, how do you do that? How do you interface with the responders coming on the scene? What's the information you're trying to gather and convey to them? All things you acquire through teen cert. So um, 
closing out, so Appendix C in this document was really disappointing for me. It had private sector resources. Okay, you don't do that because it's positionality, right? They have some default statement of saying, here's some examples of private sector resources. We don't endorse any of these. We're just making you aware of them. Well, no, you actually do endorse these. It's an implicit endorsement the moment you put these on your document because you're distributing this document out to thousands, if not tens of thousands of people. And they're going to look at this and, and they're going to say, oh, okay, they must have had some threshold to get on this list. This is a huge mistake. I don't know why this happened, but it really takes the last credibility straw that this document has and pulls it out. Here's some questions that come up the moment you do this. Hey, here's some private sector resources. Now, again, you can't be inclusive with this. You can't include all of them because it'd be an endless document. And I say you shouldn't include any of them. Um, who gets on the list and who doesn't? I don't know. I mean, who is making that decision? Again, positionality. What objective protocols are in place to do so, to make sure who gets on the list, who doesn't get on the list? What vetting is done and is a disclaimer enough? So what if you have a company on here and then that company um, you know, has had legal issues because of the services or products that they're providing or just that they don't have research for efficacy of their services or, or products. So um, let me conclude here. All right, let's wrap up. So my critique of Homeland Security's guide to prevent school gun violences, oh, pretty abrasive. Um, it's a document that I don't recommend to anybody. It's lengthy. It's, it doesn't have a clear purpose. Um, it tries to, to patch together a lot of things that relate to overall safety, but not necessarily gun safety. It goes completely off the rails once it gets into talking about things like smoke cannons, strobe lights, things like that. Um, because we know nobody's going to use those. And it doesn't go back to the fundamentals of school safety, you know, that we have doors with locks, lockable classroom doors in a default lock position, public address systems that can be heard, things like that. And then finishing up by having third-party private resources that you can potentially access. But we're not endorsing these, but of course it's an implicit endorsement. But not all is lost. The solution is not to go with this document, which I'm going to link out. So, you know, when you look at it and you, it crosses your path, you can whack it with a fly swatter and then go to the correct document or the correct website, Readiness and Emergency Management for Schools REMS, REMS TA Technical Assistance Center. That's where you need to go for school safety. Um, and again, REMS will connect you. First of all, REMS is sensible and they're going to connect you with a person, any person who's local, a person who can come out and meet with you or contact your emergency management coordinator or tell you, here's your emergency management coordinator for your area. Bring them in and talk about, um, how your school can better prepare for whether it be an intruder or a fire, or a storm, or a blackout, or whatever. This has been the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio show host, and leading safety expert, Dr. David Perot. Remember to check back each week for the latest, best, and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. You can find Dr. Perotin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe.